Alright, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So today we're actually going to finish John chapter 5. We just have a few verses left. And then we'll get into the next chapter, which is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Gospel. So we'll pick up with John 5, verse 41. Again, we'll read that until the very last verse of that chapter. So from verse 41 to verse 47. All right? So Christ is still talking to the crowd. He says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? All right. So, in the first verse that we read in this little passage, he says, do not receive honor from men. Right? Which is kind of strange because all glory and honor is due to God. Right? We as men should honor God. But he's telling us, I don't receive honor from men. And it's not because he doesn't deserve that honor. Right? Clearly, he is God. Right? And he deserves all honor. But he's saying, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in the flattery of men. I'm not interested in people just praising me for the sake of my own pride or ego. Because in him is this divine humility. Right? So he says, I don't receive honor from men because I'm not interested in any flattery because of his humility. All right? So there's a lot to be said about that, but I think um, we could at least extrapolate that little lesson from, from his humility, despite his glory and his honor. He's saying, I don't personally care for it because of that humility. All right? And then he goes on to say, I know you. Right? I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. So, for him to say, I know you, isn't just to say, like, I'm familiar with you. It's not just to say that I know about you. That word here, especially in this culture, it means like an intimate knowledge. And we've mentioned this before, right? The same way as the scriptures would say, Abraham knew Sarah, right? And they had a child, right? It's not like somebody knows about another person, but somebody actually experiences that person and to the extent that it's actually, it's actually intimate, right? It's, it's a more personal knowledge, like in the way that a husband would know his wife, the way that they would have that relationship. So he knows us personally, he knows us intimately, he knows like what's really inside our heart. Okay, so he says, but I know you, that you don't have the love of God in you. And that's precisely because he has that intimate knowledge of each one of us. He sees through the appearance and he sees what really exists deep down in our hearts because he is our God. Does that make sense? 
And what he does realize, what, what he does know about us, is that we don't have the love of God. And, and if we were to put ourselves in, in their shoes, if we we're to stand among the crowds, this is what he would be telling us, that I know you, that you don't have the love of God in you. Okay? Now, what does the love of God have to do with this? And in the, the very next verse he says, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. Okay, so what's that all about? How, how are these two related? How is it that they don't have the love of God in them? Because they did not receive him. Perfect. So in a sense, he's equating their reception of him as what constitutes love for God. You see how important that is? He's defining this quality of having love for God as receiving Christ. So what it means to love God, in these words here, is to receive Christ. Now, if I don't receive Christ, do I have the love of God? No. That's precisely why he says, you do not have the love of God, because I've come in my Father's name, and you didn't receive me. And that's pretty bold, because we look around in the world, there's a lot of good people out there, but reject Christ. And as much as God may be working in those people, if they're a different religion or atheist, yes, God is working through all of those loving activities, but that person doesn't have the love of God in his heart unless they've received Christ. I don't have the love of God in my life unless I've received Christ, because He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the only path to the Father. No one can come to the Father except through me. So, to have the love of God is to have Christ in our heart. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. The same way is like you would welcome someone into your own home. Like you accept that person. right? It's not just like I received the message like, yeah, I heard you. But like I receive you in my heart. I identify with what you stand for and what you're teaching us and I believe in that. Okay. Any questions or comments about that? Yeah. Yes. Right. And then, like, like, you guys should be doing the same thing. Right? Like, you should have yes. God Yeah. And you could look at it that way, too. I think that definitely makes sense. Right? Because the whole life of Christ is to honor God. Right? And that should translate to us as well. Right? And he's telling them that, like, it's. It's not about me. And that's what this whole passage in concluding chapter 5 is all about. In the previous verse, that he says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And we spoke about how this clearly tells us that his whole life is about 
doing the will of the Father, honoring the Father. It's not about me, it's not about what I want to do, it's not about my will, it's not about my honor and the praise that I deserve and so on. Any comments or questions about that little part? Okay. So, in the next verse, verse 43, it says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And so, when he says, if another comes in his own name, him you will receive, he's exposing their hypocrisy. To say that, okay, our law requires that there must be at least two people to verify the veracity of their testimony. Okay, fair enough. That's why I'm saying I'm not just claiming authority in my own testimony alone. Right? But if another comes in his own name without the witness of a a second person, him you'll receive. Why? Because, well, it just seems to fit your agenda. So now the whole social legalistic protocol goes out the window. It's not about having the testimony that is sufficient according to their law anymore. To them, if another person comes by himself and he's proclaiming his own testimony, if it fits their agenda, okay, we like it, we'll go with it, it's acceptable. That's why he says, if another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. But you're not treating me that way, right? So he's exposing that hypocrisy, that, that bias. Okay? And of course, that definitely tells us a lot too. Whenever we have any sort of prejudice or bias with others, um, some people we receive, some people we don't, some people we accept, some people we don't, some people we forgive, some people we don't. Right? And that's because we may treat people differently. And we really have to dig deep and see if that's the case. Like someone like, okay, I like him a little bit more, so it's easier for me to forgive that person if he crosses the line with me. But, you know, that person over there, like, he just looked at me in the wrong way, and <laughs> it's game over. <laughs> right? So, clearly they have this bias and this prejudice against him, and he's exposing that. All right? So he goes on to say, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Okay, so he's, he's questioning them. He's questioning the way that they honor each other, but they're rejecting the honor that comes from God. He says, Don't think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. And we'll talk about how Moses is the one who accuses them. But in distinguishing between this honor from man and God, how do we understand the difference? What does the honor that comes from man look like compared to the honor that comes from God? What's the difference? Well, in terms of like the secular honor that we see in the world, like the honor that comes from men, Right? How is that different than the honor that comes from God? The 
Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, everyone understand how that comes into play? Like, men look at the surface and honor people based on the external appearance. And even with that, like, despite really having an understanding of the whole person, the honor still comes with bias and prejudice or whatever like everybody has their own preferences to honor people in a different way exactly and it doesn't last that's a very important factor to, to consider because like there's all of these fads that come and go these these trends like society will honor a sort of person that's doing this because that's the in thing right now whereas god it's it's constant it's consistent and um, with God, it's a product of what really exists in the person's heart. And it's an honor that comes even from his own grace, aside from the condition of the person. Even if we're to say that God looks at the whole person, the inside and outside, the, the heart and the behavior, you know, God still honors us as his own children even if we don't deserve that honor and we're not perfect you know in his love and in his mercy he still sees us as his creation he sees us as his image and that's an honor that's a product of his own love as opposed to an honor that's a product of our own condition right and of course God favors us differently based on how we respond to His love and His grace and so on. But He doesn't treat us with favoritism. Okay, Okay, so He goes on to say that there's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. How is it that Moses is the one who accuses them? Okay, so they know the law of Moses, but what is it that they're contradicting in the law of Moses? Is it, is it because they're not following the law? Okay, so then how is it that Moses accuses them? There's something deeper in the law, in the prophets, and what Moses spoke about. It's all about how we interpret. So they took it literally as I Okay, so I see what you're saying. They were looking at the law legalistically, and that is like a condemnation to them, right? I think you, were, you almost said it, that they were missing something. The point. Hmm? Well, what is the point of the law and the prophets? What is the Old Testament all about? Who is it all about? Exactly. Moses spoke to them of the Messiah, right? The rock that followed them in the wilderness. Um, 
the, the serpent that was suspended on the pole, the crucified Messiah, like everything was about the prophet who will, who will come and save them. Right? So Moses spoke to them about Christ. And so he's telling them, if you believe in Moses and you claim to follow him, why are you neglecting what he said? In particular, what he said about me. Right? So if you're going to apply what he said, apply it holistically. Don't just pick and choose. Right? Like I always say the scriptures are not a buffet. You don't just walk up to the Bible and say, I'll take this, I'll leave that. This looks good. You know, this is healthy. I'll take it. No, that looks fatty. I'm not going to eat that. Or this looks sweet. Okay, like that's not the way the scriptures work. You have to take it holistically. The, the easy and the hard, the bitter and the sweet. And as you read the scriptures and you understand the Old Testament in the light of Christ, you realize that everything was pointing to him. Okay, so that's why he's saying, you are accusing yourself by claiming to follow the law and claiming to follow Moses, but you're actually not doing what you're claiming to do. So you, like you're digging your own grave. Okay. Exactly. 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 Like we want him to fit our expectations. And they were definitely in that camp. Like they wanted the Messiah to just come and wipe out the Roman regime and say, okay, like, so this is someone who liberated us from these authorities. They weren't looking for a spiritual reform, they were looking for a legal reform. Right? And Christ said, like, I'm not here for what you're expecting. I'm here for something deeper, something more valuable, to save your souls, right? To liberate you from sin, not to liberate you from the Romans. The, the, the real tyrant is sin, not the authorities ruling over you, okay? Okay, so then he concludes to say that if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So by that he's emphasizing that the Old Testament and the New Testament are inseparable, right? If you don't believe in the prophecies, how will you believe in their fulfillment, right? So both are one and the same. The Old Testament and the New Testament are complete, okay? So we can't just pick and choose. And I think it's also important for us to spend as much time as possible reading the Old Testament and as scary as it may seem uh, to really dig into the, the prophets and to read those big scary books like uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah and like to actually look at the commentaries and the patristics and to, to dig into those books as well even though they require a little bit more work. You know, the New Testament is kind of easy to digest um, but we should also challenge ourselves because we realize the significance of the Old Testament and to really spend time and effort reading the Old Testament as well. Okay. Any comments or questions before we get into the next chapter? Which is the most important 
chapter in the scriptures that relates to the sacraments and more specifically the Eucharist. So this is a, a big, significant chapter. Uh, so let's dive right in and we'll read the first nine verses. Okay? So John chapter 6, verse 1 to 9. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were deceased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in the, the setting for this scene. Okay, and how we approach this chapter and, and read it in its proper context is really important because, like I said, this sets the stage for the Eucharist. It's not just about God's provisions, and we know how Christ fed the 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, and we say He always provides for us and so on. But there's so much more to it than that. Okay, and when we set the scene and understand the context appropriately, then we'll realize that okay so for starters why are the people following Jesus exactly they saw a bunch of signs okay and they were either entertained or they were glad that he fixed their problems whatever it was they saw the signs maybe some of them were just curious and some of them wanted some entertainment or some of them were genuinely caring to follow him okay maybe for some of them those signs caused real faith to grow in their heart okay but i think that's an important question for us to ask ourselves like we see the signs in our lives, we see the signs in the lives of the saints, we see the signs that God does in the church throughout the whole history of humanity. And we also follow Christ, we're here in Bible study, and we go along with it. We have to ask ourselves, why am I following Christ? Like, is it because these signs are an entertainment to me? Is it because I, I want God to be like a vending machine for me? Especially when I know He's like a free vending machine. Like I just come and ask and say, I need this, I need that. And He says, okay, here. Because He was healing everyone, right? Like everybody that had these problems, they would come with their diseases and He would heal them. To them, look, okay, there's this magical physician, right? Or maybe some people just want to come to church to satisfy their own conscience or whatever it is, right? It's such a critical question for us to ask. What are my real intentions? 
why am I really here? Why am I considered a Christian? Am I just going through the motions? Or do I really want to pursue a real relationship with God? Do I really want to invest? Do I really want to commit? Am I convicted by this path and I will follow it no matter the cost? Okay, so we have to ask ourselves that question and, and, and to think about whether it's just all about what God can do for me or whether I want to invest in a relationship with Him so I can offer my heart to Him and sacrifice myself in, in a real, genuine, loving relationship. In the same way as a married couple would sacrifice for each other. Okay? So, that's one question to ask ourselves. And then, Jesus goes up on the mountain. Why? Like, what caused him to just go up? So that people can get a better view of him? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's definitely going to help whenever he's at a higher ground for, for them to notice him and to hear him. Like, you know, your voice would project. And that's definitely helpful for him. But if you look at this passage, and by the way, this is one of the very few miracles that are actually included in all four gospel accounts. Most of the miracles are isolated to one or two or three of the gospel accounts, but very few are actually in all four. Okay, and this is one of them. So if you do a little cross-check between the other gospel accounts and you notice what the synoptic gospel accounts write about this passage, especially in the gospel of Mark, you'll see that there was a very strange reason for him to go up to the mountain. Okay, so open to Mark chapter 6. And uh, someone read verse 31 for me. Mark six thirty-one. And by the way, it's easy to remember that both accounts for feeding the 5,000 men for John and Mark are in the same chapter number. So it's easier to remember. Okay, so in context, who was he addressing in that verse you read? Not the crowd. The disciples. Okay, so read that one more time now and think about Christ telling his disciples this message. Okay, so there's a lot of people, it's a big crowd, and he tells his disciples, come aside and rest for a while. So what's the real objective here? Exactly. Let's get away from the crowd. Okay, let's have some alone time. Just me and my homies, me and the disciples, like just personal time. Okay, and... That really stresses the importance of this 
concept of having a spiritual retreat. Like we need to just get away from the noise. And not just to get away from the crowd in a literal sense, but even when we're like alone at home, we get away from the social media, we get away from our phones, we get away from the technology. And then the next step is to get away from all of the noise in our head, the thoughts that bombard us and so on. And that takes real work, real practice. It's like a spiritual warfare. But we do that so that we can get away and rest for a while. Like that verse says, come aside and rest for a while. This is precisely why Christ wanted to go up on the mountain, to have that personal, intimate time with his disciples. Okay? Now, notice that this was a time specifically for the disciples. Okay? It was for the people committed to him. It wasn't just like, okay, let's have a discussion with the whole crowd. You know, in some cases, that's what Christ wants to do. Okay? He wants to address everyone. But here it's like there's a more specific message for the people who really believe, the people who want to follow me. Now you're getting like the more exclusive sermon, right? Like this is something that's reserved for the people who already have an ear to hear. That makes sense? So this whole event was intended for those who are considered disciples. Okay? And what did we say this whole event is about? This is, this is a setting for what? Hmm? To pray? Okay, that's a part of it. Whenever there's this dialogue with the disciples, this is definitely true. Like when you retreat and you have that personal time. But what is this whole chapter about? Like what is this beginning leading to? Feeding the multitude. Okay, what is that all about? Communion, the Eucharist. Okay? So, this whole event is for feeding the people with his body and his blood. And it wasn't for just anyone. And that's why it's important for us to really consider who this is intended for. The disciples. If, if you consider yourself a disciple of Christ, it is to ascend the mountain with Him, sit at His feet, and partake of the Eucharist. That's what this is all about. This isn't just for any random person. This is for the disciples, so that they can, first and foremost, put in the work, because you're not just going on a stroll in the park, you're climbing up a mountain, so it's, it's a strenuous hike. Okay, so getting to church, um, sacrificing our sleep, getting there on time, making sure that we put our phones away and we're sacrificing our, our work and we're sacrificing uh, the hobbies that we could be doing or whatever entertainment we can be just engaged in during that time, we're sacrificing that, which is a real struggle. 
because it's climbing a mountain. Okay? So who, who is this for? It's not just anyone. It's for the disciples who are committed. Not just anyone is going to be like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to forfeit a couple of hours of TV and, you know, give up my Netflix, give up my social media to just read my Bible. That's a real sacrifice. That's a, a real commitment. Okay? And the objective is the Eucharist. That's what it all leads to. Okay? So, going back to the original thing we said, the, the initial reason to go up to the mountain for that retreat, we can also notice this divine humility in Christ to surrender His plans. Because His initial objective was to get away from the crowd and to be alone with his disciples. But what actually happens? Yeah, the, there's a pretty big event that's going down. And he's gladly accepting it, embracing it, and saying, okay, change of plans. It's not what I had in mind, but I'm going to redirect my plans to do this. This is God's will here and now. I wanted to do this, but God put something else in front of me, and I'm going to attend to that here and now. And that's so powerful, right? Because he has no will of his own. This is how Christ lived. Like God puts a certain task in front of us. Let's say, even when we're doing something good, like a child or a teenager is studying, and one of his parents tell him, I, I need you to come and help me with this. Um, come help me take out the trash. I don't know, something silly like that. And what we have to do is just pause and say, this is what God requires of me right, right here, right now. And we can apply that in a more practical way in our life as adults, right? And, and if we're attentive to God's voice and His will, we say, like, this is what the present moment requires and I submit to that, I surrender to that, and I put in the work that this moment requires of me. Okay? And trust me, it was work because he just wanted a break with his disciples, except it's going back to social time. <laughs> right? And trust me, that's hard. When you're around people and all you want to do is just like, I want a break. But God's like, wait, time to serve a little more. <laughs> you're like, okay. And I'm not going to even be bitter about it. I'm just going to accept it, embrace it, and sacrifice. Okay? All right. And glory be to God forever. Amen.